Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years, sometimes single stories, sometimes whole episodes. Keep in mind that years ago, people might have worded things differently than they would today. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, an episode that first premiered in December of 2011, it's an episode we call Damaged Goods. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Way Yes. Behind me now, this is our final show of the year 2011. It has been a hell of a year, a, a hell, a hell yeah kind of year. My fine feathered and four fendered friends. <laughs> You're in the hands of a host who lives up to the title of this episode, Damaged Goods. Lots of uh, random stories from the past year recorded in random places on today's show, and they all feature a character who has weathered a storm or two and maybe not come back all in one piece. I myself am in a few more pieces right now than when I first started this this hosting segment. Our first story comes to us from Colorado. Out there in Denver, there is a show called The Narrators, hosted by our good friend Andrew Overdahl. Uh, you can learn more about The Narrators at fiveunicorns.com. And this story that we're starting with is by the actor Kent Shelton. Kent also manages the Gothic Theater in the Inglewood area out there. And here he is with a story we call Cat Daddy. Over the years, I've had a lot of pets. I've had about, I don't know, eight cats and five dogs. And I'm proud to say, I only ever lost one of them. I lost one cat. And to be fair, it was a cat I did not like. I was living uh, on the fifth floor of an apartment building in Chelsea in New York. And I was living there with a woman who I loved and who hated me. And uh, she had a cat that she loved that I hated. And the cat hated us both. 
It was a horrible cat. It was really, it was a, like a, a stray she had brought in as a kitten. It was this black skinny cat with a bad haircut. And it really wasn't even like having a cat. It was like you had trapped an angry crow in your apartment. It was, uh, you just couldn't pick it up without it like, twisting and biting. And it was just, uh, it was horrible. And one day, it wasn't around anymore. We couldn't find it anywhere in the apartment. It didn't come to the kitchen and make this horrible sound that it usually made when it was hungry. We couldn't find it. And so we assumed, we were on the fifth floor, we assumed it had gotten out in the hall and maybe somebody had taken it in. I didn't assume it had gone out the fifth story window because there was not a dead cat all over the sidewalk in front of the building. So I, uh, at the lady's insistence, I made a lost cat sign. We made five copies of it. And I went and put one in front of the elevator on every floor of the building, which in retrospect is really fucking stupid because I could have put it in the elevator because that's a little room that travels to every floor of the building. But I put up five signs. <sighs> and uh, a couple days went by, three or four days, and nobody ever uh, contacted us about the cat. And I thought, well, the cat's gone. And so it was... I don't know, it was like three, four days later, I was leaving the apartment about 10 o'clock at night. I was going to go up to the corner store or do something. I was being sent on an errand. And as I walked out of the apartment building, I heard a meow and I froze. And I heard a meow again. And I looked down in the area where the trash cans are under the front stoop of the building. And the meow was coming from there. And I went down and moved a couple of trash cans aside. And there was the cat meowing and alive and now this is this is another floor down so this is six floors from that window and the cat had fallen and was there and i, I picked the cat up and it seemed perfectly normal except that one of its back legs was kind of like a uh, wind chime made of driftwood that was kind of just spinning around in a really nauseating way so i hopped in a cab and immediately uh, made out for the, uh, the only vet you can go to at 11 o'clock in Manhattan, which is the Animal Medical Center on East 62nd Street, about 50 blocks away. And I'm glad that the cat was in shock and probably dehydrated and had a broken leg because I could actually ride in a cab with it for 50 blocks because if I had tried that when the cat was feeling in the pink, I would have gotten out of the cab looking like a red Jackson Pollock painting and uh, it was a terrible, terrible cat. So I, I got to the Animal Medical Center, went into the emergency room there, and uh, they, uh, they immediately grabbed the cat and, and wheeled it off and started looking at it. And a, uh, a, a vet came to me and said, well, the cat's, the cat's in shock. I think the cat has a broken leg. We've sedated the cat, and it's, it's comfortable now. Go back home, and we'll call you tomorrow and let you know what's up with the cat. And I said, it's, I can just go. I, it's gonna be all right? And they're like, yeah, we sedated the cat. We'll have the vet in the morning take a look at it and we'll, uh, we'll give you a call. And I was like, oh, all right. Well, the next morning I didn't hear anything. The next afternoon I went to work. And then about two in the afternoon, I got a phone call from the Animal Medical Center on uh, East 62nd Street. And they said, your cat's out of surgery. You can come pick him up anytime you'd like. It's $2,800. And I said, I wouldn't give you 28 fucking cents for this lousy, horrible cat. Uh, but I, I got in a cab and I went back up there and I went in and I was like, I'm gonna, I didn't authorize any surgery. I didn't say, this was a free cat. This cat was a, this is a millstone around our neck, this curse of a cat. 
and now you're going to wipe out my meager savings for this awful cat, and now it's going to be a bionic cat that'll probably never die. Uh, so I went in to argue with them. I stood there at the uh, at the the desk where they make you pay all your money to get back something you didn't want. And we argued and we went around and around and I said like, I never authorized. And they said, well, it's a, here's what it is and you have to do it. And while we were arguing, in the midst of arguing, all of a sudden, a pair of double doors slam open and a couple of people come running in and they're like, bunny in a coma! And everybody freaks out. Everybody's running around, they're like saying the shit you hear on ER. It's like, stat, Kim 7, uh, CBC, lights! They're like all freaking out and uh, pushing this bunny on in a gurney and I, all of a sudden I'm, I've got nobody left to argue with. I'm just standing there. So I start pushing through double doors. I go into a room and it's full of cages, full of miserable looking dogs. And into another room that's full of like uh, plexiglass cages, full of like spiders with crutches. And uh, I go into a, a, another room and it's full of cats, full of cats in cages. And I look and I'm going, uh, you know, left to right, Dewey Decimal. Uh, and I find a cat that looks exactly like mine, except that it is shaved up to its hip and has an, like 5,000 pins going through its knee and this giant orthopedic piece of hardware. And I unclasp the cage, put the cat under my coat and run down the back stairs to an elevator. <laughs> I get home with the cat and uh, it's, you know, this giant piece of hardware and, and it, but it seems to be okay. It's eating and it's doing everything it did before. Uh, a few months later, all the hair had grown back, but there was still this big thing of pins and, and uh, stuff uh, on its leg. And I was like, well, I can't go back to the animal medical center. Uh, so I found some like weird hippie vet down in Chelsea who was like, no questions asked. Just took all the pins out and yeah, tried to sell me some like special K and you know, and it, so the cat was fine. Everything was cool. Then I started getting phone calls from the animal medical center saying, hey, you owe us $2,800 and uh, we're not gonna give you your cat back unless you pay it. And I said, well, okay, get the cat ready. I'll be down this afternoon. Uh, and I wouldn't go. And they'd call me a couple days later and say, look, we're not going to be able to release your pet until you at least set up a payment plan. And I was like, well, you know, uh, you keep the cat. And, uh, and this keeps going. Uh, they don't know I have the cat. They don't know they've lost the cat, for Christ's sakes. Uh, they're just in the billing department, and they think, yeah, there, we're going to get this guy's money. We'll give him his cat back then. Eventually, they turn it over to a collection agency. A collection agency, a guy named uh, Sonny Posada from some collection agency starts calling me every day saying, look, you got to start making payments on this cat. And I'm like, hey, I don't have a cat. They, uh, they took my cat. They never gave me my cat back. And he's just getting more and more confused by this. He's like, look, uh, but they sent it into collections and, and look, we can get our money somehow. And I was curious about how they would do that because at that time I was working under the table as a bartender at some crummy Irish bar on the west side. I was getting paid 150 bucks cash every Friday by a guy who wanted to go double or nothing for it on the pool table. I had no bank accounts. I had no insurance. And I was like, what are you going to do? You're going to garnish my wages? I don't have any. Are, are you going to uh, put a lien on my property? I've got nothing. I was like, the, and I finally told Sonny Posada, I was like, Sonny, the only way you're going to get your money is if you come down here to West 19th Street and take it from me. That's the only way you're going to get it, because I've got nothing you can freeze, no assets you can take. I'm down here. I'm the guy standing on the front stoop with a chainsaw, cutting up bill collectors, wearing a hockey mask. You want to come get your money? Come on. And he finally told me, he said, you know what? 
I think that this debt is uncollectible. I said, thank you, Sonny, that's what I've been telling you all along. And so he never called me again. And after this big adventure, this big ordeal, um, I still had the cat. I still had Java, the awful, awful cat. And I, I still didn't like it anymore. I didn't love it, but there must have been some bonding through this whole adventure. Because I, uh, I kept the wife four more years and I kept the cat eight more fucking years. So, uh, so I guess we got together on something eventually. Thank you, guys. to call me that. Don't you talk to me that way. Oh, so you're going to tell me to shut up now. What difference does it make? What makes you think I'd tell you if I knew? Well, I don't understand what you're talking about half the time anyway. Can we talk about something else? In 1999, I was 18 years old and it was my first time out of the house and moving into college. During high school, I had kind of led a double life where I did a lot of drugs. I smoked pot pretty much every day. Had a pretty strong background in LSD, but however, I managed to always be on the high honor roll. So basically, I had really good grades without ever having to try. So when I got to college, it was a bit of a culture shock that I actually had to try. So for the first year, I didn't, and I got kind of caught up in leisure activities. I discovered the rave scene, and I decided to start doing designer drugs, like ecstasy, combining it with cocaine, and then balancing it out, of course, just to make sure I was a well-rounded person. I uh, used a lot of uh, Ritalin, Adderall, and Valium, of course, um, you know, just to make sure I had the entire food pyramid covered. I'm a little under five feet tall. I'm about four foot nine, probably between 80 and 90 pounds. I was pretty skeletal and I had bleached my hair blonde, white girl blonde. I'm Asian and my hair was white girl blonde. And the drugs and the partying had a pretty negative effect on my academic career. But more importantly, it had a really negative impact on my wallet which of course was more important to me at the time because that was what I needed to buy more ecstasy. All I lived on was either spaghetti sauce sandwiches or I would eat raw uncooked ramen noodles. So I was in pretty good shape, peak physical condition. Uh, so I was leafing through the back of some newspaper and 
I saw an ad that read, wanted girls with long hair for $40 an hour. And at the time I thought, you know, I knew some hair models and I had done a really bad independent film where I played a 13 year old android, which got me through about one week's worth of ecstasy and cocaine. Uh, I had also posed for the cover of a local rap artist's CD. So I wasn't really sure. At this point I was thinking maybe Maybe it's not a modeling thing, but maybe it's some kind of a research thing. <laughs> I was really in a... Pr it's amazing the things you could tell yourself when you really just want a couple of hits of ecstasy. <laughs> so I, I asked a friend of mine to come with me to meet this guy. I asked him to meet me in a public place. And uh, I met with a friend of mine at, on the steps of the student union at the university. And she was complaining to me at the time she was working at the university bookstore. And she was telling me about her boss, who she said was really creepy, and he would constantly inappropriately touch people. He gave out a lot of unwanted back rubs. And then all of a sudden, I hear Kim, and I look up, and I see this tall, lanky, skinny guy who reeked of patchouli and just looked like if he touched him, he'd probably be sticky. And then my friend looks up and says, oh my god, it's my boss. And the guy looked at me and said, Kim, and looked at her and said, Mindy. And he was not too thrilled with the situation, but he must have liked hair, especially mine, an awful lot because he uh, forged ahead. And it was probably the most awkward job interview I've ever had where we sat on the steps. And for about 10 minutes, we just talked about hair. And he was asking me about, uh, you know, so how often do you wash your hair? Do you like your hair touched? Do you like to brush your hair a lot? And I could feel my friend's eyes burning into the back of my head. She was sitting on one side, he was sitting on the other. It started to dawn on me that this guy was in no way involved with any kind of fashion show or any kind of art by any stretch of the imagination as much as I wanted to uh, put myself in denial. So towards the last minute of questioning when he said, would you mind turning around and just kind of shaking your hair out for me a little bit? Yeah, that's right. That's when it kind of hit me. Oh my God. This guy is a hair fetishist, but I really need drug money. So, so then I agreed to meet him, of course, which made perfect sense at the time. A little bit of hair brushing, clothes on, you know, nothing below the neck. That could get me through an entire weekend. So anyways, I ended up agreeing to meet him and we developed a kind of a weird friendship where we would meet in the back of the library at the University of Buffalo and I would bring my own hairbrush and he would sit behind me and we would sit in this corner and he would brush my hair and he never touched me like on my body or anything like that, but he would brush my hair and, and I think he would get close enough maybe to just smell it, but he never buried his nose in it or anything. But after a while, you'd be surprised at how much you can be desensitized to. Um, I actually kind of got used to it. And I would usually just be reading a book or something. Once in a while, he would just say, can you shake it out for me? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, um, uh, we met for, you know, a few, quite a few times, you know, enough to get me a fair share of ecstasy, to get me to the point where I felt like, okay, I could probably put in my two weeks notice. So I actually ended up sending him a really nice email 
I just said, you know, I, it was really nice getting to know you. I think it's great. I hope you find someone else who can suit your needs, but I have a, I think I'm going to move on to other things um, and expand my horizons in other directions. And he was really kind. And uh, interestingly enough, about a month later, he emailed me asking for a reference because he had put an ad in the paper asking for girls with long hair again. Someone had answered it again. And she wanted to make sure that he wasn't a, uh, a weirdo, I guess. And so he asked me to shoot her an email, just letting her know that he wasn't some serial killer, just a very innocent, very skinny hair fetishist. Uh, I did send her an email saying, you know, he's a nice guy. He just wants to brush her hair, maybe sniff it a little. And I don't really know. <laughs> I don't really know whatever whatever came of that. But to this day, that's always been my favorite job. I've worked in a lot of environments since then. You know, now I actually teach and I have a side job where I do data entry in a really very corporate environment. And uh, of any job I've ever had, this is probably the job that had the least amount of bullshit and it was the most upfront straight exchange of here's the cash and here's my hair enjoy <laughs>
This is Mr. James Reichmuth with a story we call Way, Way Tenango. I don't do drugs or drink, and I'm not just saying that uh, because I'm a practicing psychiatrist in this town right now. Um, uh, but, 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 I, but I'm not just saying that. That's actually true. So the, a drug story that's happened to me is barely a drug story. I have to go back a couple of decades, and, and briefly, we were in a basement in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and... Uh, we were going to smoke pot, and there were four of us, and the, uh, the guy who had the pot had rolled up six joints. Mind you, that's back when they used to smoke joints, uh, because it was Pittsburgh, and Pittsburgh isn't famous for its marijuana. Um, you don't hear of things like Pittsburgh Kush or Steel Town Sin or something like that. It doesn't have its own... There's no pot named after Pittsburgh. So he rolled six joints, and he, he says, okay, there's four of us. He says, you two, me and this other guy, you two pair off, and then we'll pair off, and, and we'll each pick our three and smoke them in pairs, which should have raised alarm bells. <laughs> so he holds them out, and now I know that three were distinctly larger than the others. He says, you guys can pick first, me and my friend. We pick the biggest one. And he and the other guy, they look and they pick another. And then we pick the biggest one that's left over. And we keep doing that until they're all divvied up. And we light up. And we're smoking and they're smoking. And they're starting to laugh hysterically. And we're not. We're starting to salivate profusely. Um, So much so that water is sort of pouring out of our mouths. We're just spitting as fast as you can. The water's coming out and there's no sensation of being high at all. And it's because our three joints were catnip. <laughs> now, now, the thing about that, because smoking catnip by itself, that's not so terribly unusual or funny. What to me is funny about that is, is that they relied on our own greed <laughs> to pick those three. I mean, we were alternating. And at any point, we simply could have picked anything but the largest joint in his hand. And if we had done that once, we would have gotten a real marijuana cigarette. Now, so far, I mean, mind you, catnip is not illegal, although I did get home that night, and and the cat looked at me and said, I hope it was some good shit. It makes you wonder if cats do the same thing and the three big ones are marijuana and the three little ones are catnip. Here, you pick first. Um, So for that reason, I think I should not talk about my own drug use because, I mean, that that was catnip. In the mid-90s, I went to Central America with four other medical students. We went to Quetzaltenango in Guatemala. And near Quetzaltenango, actually not that near, 
is a town called Todos Santos, which is famous for a horse race that they hold every year. And they have for decades or maybe centuries. Nobody knows how long. And I guess centuries are nothing more than a bunch of decades, right? <laughs> right? So, you do the math. <laughs> um, Uh, but the point is, is that this horse race was famous enough that it was in National Geographic. And it, it was in National Geographic for two reasons. One is because they wear colorful clothing during the horse race. And two, because almost every year somebody dies during this race. And I'll get back to the race. Okay, so I'm staying at a house in Quetzaltenango with these other medical students. We're living with a Guatemalan family. And one of the other medical students is with us and I'll call him Igor, decides that he wants to get some cocaine. And I won't, I, I'm not just saying this, I was very against this at the time. As a matter of fact, it, it caused arguments between us. I thought that was really wrong to do in that household, in part because he was getting it from the dad of the Guatemalan family, <laughs> who presumably may actually have been in some kind of recovery before that. And this dad, by the way, his name is Mario. He's a gullible guy, and you'd have breakfast each morning with him. And this is back when the 49ers, the San Francisco 49ers, were like a household name throughout the world when they were huge. And we had convinced Mario that Jerry Rice was just a few inches tall. <laughs> and, and he didn't believe that. And we said, oh, yeah, yeah, his nickname is El Enano Millonario, the millionaire dwarf. So he had gotten Mario to get him some cocaine, and this was causing some friction amongst us because I thought that was a bad idea and, and uh, that we shouldn't be setting that kind of example. And he said, what's the worst that could happen? I said, well, all sorts of things. You know? and, and one day when they were using it, I went out, left the house, and went to a corner store and came back and found out that the baby had choked in the house like a two-year-old baby, and Igor, on cocaine, had successfully saved the baby's life. <laughs> So I was like down one to zero already on the cocaine. <laughs> and you know how like, we all know the Heimlich maneuver. Do you remember the baby Heimlich maneuver from the class? To slightly remember this whole thing? She's got it. It's, it's a little more involved. But I guess coke helps that. <laughs> Somehow the muscles that are used. And there was another guy that lived in the house whose name was Esteban. And Esteban, actually his name was Steven, he was Australian, was... Yeah, yeah. except for one thing. He was one of those gringos down there who uh, uh, adheres to the very annoying rule, which is that you should never speak English, even with your friends or countrymen, or you won't learn the language. So he took that rule to a, a ridiculous level in that I never spoke a single word of English to him in five weeks. His Spanish was poor, and he was on a suicide mission. I mean, an actual suicide mission. He had told us that he expected to be dead by 35, and he would do things during the night that were just, well, they were suicidal. They were suicidal things, and he would tell us about them in the morning at this, these self-same breakfasts in this Spanish with this really thick Australian accent because he wouldn't tell you in English, and you'd say, Anoche, Yo fui a un hotel con unos prostitutos. <laughs> a alguien my golpe así con una botella. <laughs> and he'd have like stitches across his head. And you'd be like, you know, you know, the word prostitutes and that. Después me fui a un hospital porque me quebré el brazo. Look. And he'd have a cast on. 
and you'd just be just utterly shocked by all this. Never spoke a word besides that. Um, so this was the home base from which we made our trek to this perilous ancient horse race in Weiwei-Tenango. And it's called Weiwei-Tenango because it's way, way <laughs> Tenango. <laughs> I mean, in English, Weiwei-Tenango is a Mayan word that means way the fucking Tenango, way out there. Because the second way means fuck. It's a way... F- um, so we go way out into Weiwei-Tenango to Todos Santos. And we spend the first night, and I didn't tell you that Igor and another medical student were into drugs. And one thing about Central America is you can go and get pills from the pharmacy without a prescription. And it's not the good pills, mind you. You can't really get like Vicodin and stuff. You can get kind of like low-grade stuff. Like some muscle relaxants and stuff you've never heard of. But it was good enough for them, right? And they mixed them all into a plastic bag, all together, all these different colors. And they nicknamed each pill something from Central America like corn or beans or rice. And they didn't even really know what these were. They would just say, I took two corns and a rice, and it was really good. <laughs> two corns and a rice and some beans. <clears throat> and, you just, and, uh, and so we begin this lengthy trek into Weiwei-Tenango for the Todos Santos horse race. And the, the, we get there and realize that the horse race itself is a long dirt road, nothing more than... And it has, it's basically cut into a hillside so that you can either stand above the road looking down onto it or you can be down below the road, basically with almost at eye level with the track itself. And we find that the horse race is not a race and that there is no finish line. The entire group of riders rides to the end of the road, then they drink moonshine, turn around and ride to the other end of the road back and forth all day until it's all over. You can see why occasionally somebody dies, right? Because at the end, these people are in a Quetzalteca blackout riding bareback on, you know, on, on horses. At this point, Igor is like on several corns and rice and beans. And, and he was a defiant dude too. So if you told him something like, you know, like you knew as a medical student that the one thing you could never do on barbiturates was mix it with alcohol. And you'd say something to him like that. Whatever you do, do not drink alcohol. And he'd come out of this kind of uptunded state in the back of the bus and look up at you. And all, I hear, all he'd hear was you saying, a wah, 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 alcohol. <laughs> and at the next stop, he'd go out and he'd come back with like a 22-ouncer and he'd be drinking it with... It, it, like we just had to watch him and make sure he kept breathing, basically. So we get there, and we decide to be below the racetrack. So we're at eye level. And the horses begin to run back and forth, and they pause at each step. And we're there for hours, and there's some close calls, etc., but nothing really terrible. And then a horse with its rider, who's almost perfectly in front of us, and I can remember it because it's one of those snapshots that stays like a snapshot, rears up into the air with his hoofs in the air and I can see him and I can see all the tourists up behind him on the higher part with their cameras staring just kind of in slow-mo all these like German tourists and some different sizes and the horse goes over on top of the rider completely and then we're frozen 
except for Igor, who scrambles up the hillside onto the racetrack that still has horses running on it. And he grabs the reins of the horse and starts to pull it towards him, but as the horse starts to get up, he finds himself essentially on the back of it as it's riding. (laughs) Now, I know, I'm asking you for too much there. And he slides off. So he doesn't end up riding the horse, but it is, he's on it and then gets off, grabs the man and drags him to the side. And we do the only thing we can, which is essentially keep the man from aspirating on his own vomit. He's still breathing. And we put him legs down and heads up, and we find an NGO car somewhere. All the cool cars down there are part of, you know, Doctors Without Borders or something like that. And they basically took him from us. And I have no idea what happened to him. Igor went into emergency medicine. And he has a tattoo on his arm that is a happy face that looks almost as if it's been burned on there. And after he saved a baby and this Indian and some other things, mostly in a blackout, (laughs) I want to suggest that the next time you're in the emergency room getting your toenail drained or something, if, if he's wearing those cute short sleeve scrubs, Look for the happy face tattoo under there. Because if you see it, you're probably going to do just fine. (laughs) Thank you. This is Group Love behind me now with a song called Spun. And we have one more story for you today. It comes from one of our workshop shows, the class show that is done at the end of our nine-week storytelling workshop that we teach at the Story Studio here in New York. The audio engineer working the equipment on this particular day was me. That's why this story sounds a little strange. But that's also how I'd describe uh, this story's author, Mr. Drew Prohaska. You can find him at drewbaca.com. He is the author of the upcoming book, Where We Were When We Were Werewolves. <laughs> and he told this one several months ago at the Story Studio. We call it In Reverse.
So uh, because my parents both worked like insane hours, I spent a lot of my childhood taking care of my little brother, who was uh, nine years younger than me. He was this little uh, freckle-faced, ginger-haired uh, little turd named, <laughs> named Matthew. And um, I really loved him. And uh, he used to get into all sorts of shenanigans, and I wasn't the best babysitter because I always sort of encouraged them and, uh, and found them hilarious. Like there was this one time I was, I was asked to come pick him up from daycare, and I, I pulled up in my car, and uh, immediately the, the principal or whatever she is was sort of dragging him out to the car, you know, by his arm, and you know, he's crying and whatnot, and, and, uh, and, 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 and I was like, you know, what happened? And she said, well, you know, we went on a field trip to a horse ranch, and your little brother Matthew was throwing rocks at the horses. And I looked at Matthew, and he's just this giant, you know, snot bubble with tears sort of squirting out the side. And I said, Matthew, is this true? And he said, uh, I wasn't trying to hit the horses. I was trying to hit the riders. And, and, uh, and this lady's like screaming at me. And the whole time, I'm just thinking, this kid is fucking awesome. Yeah? So I love taking care of him. And I like taking care of like all kids. You know, I, I uh, actually, right after college, I got a job at, at uh, Parenting Magazine um, as an associate editor. And uh, one day, I was sitting in my cubicle. And I'm surrounded, you know, by magazines and books with pictures of like infants and little kids, you know, and little Oshkoshes and, and cribs and little, you know, babies with, you know, boobs in their mouths and stuff. And, and there's a, my phone starts ringing and I see on the caller ID, it's my mom. So uh, I pick up the phone and it doesn't even get to my ear before I hear, did you tell your brother he was adopted? And I went, oh shit. And my finger sort of mashed against the rewind button in my head. And, and, I, and I went back in time to when I was 16. And I was sitting in, in my basement in our house in Virginia. And, uh, and, and my little brother's trying to wrestle the remote control away from me so he could watch Inspector Gadget. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm like busy fucking, you know, trying to save the universe, you know, on Nintendo. And, and, uh, and I just sort of over my shoulder just went, uh, you know, shut up, you know, you're adopted. And, uh, and I went back to, you know, kicking some Metroid ass. And I didn't really realize it at the time that those words, like, you know, really uh, hit him pretty hard. And uh, he didn't really say anything, but over the next seven years, he was sort of riding this tsunami wave of delinquent, rebellious behavior, you know, uh, shoplifting, uh, vandalizing, uh, and whatnot. Uh, and he finally told his guidance counselor uh, the reason why he was so rebellious was because his older brother, Drew, had told him that he was adopted and that his family was, were imposters and that his, they were all lying to him. And the thing is, he wasn't adopted. You know, I just told him that so he would just shut up while I played Nintendo, you know? Uh, so, um... I went off to college, and apparently his behavior got worse over the years while I was gone. Uh, so much to the uh, point where my mom called me up one day when I was 19 and said, 
please take him. Can you, can, can you please just take him for the weekend? You know, and I was living in New York at the time. I went to NYU and I, had, I was in my first apartment and it was like a, I was living in like this permanent cloud of like marijuana smoke with like my two best friends, one of which was a skinhead named Bongo, you know? And my mom knew all this, but she was like, just please fucking take him, you know, for the weekend. So she, uh, she manages to get him a ride to New York and, and all of a sudden I have this 10 year old kid in New York and I don't know what to do with him. You know, all we did was drink and go to punk rock shows and stuff. So uh, me and my buddies took him to Coney Island. For the, for the day. And, uh, you know, we did the, the usual, we rode the cyclone, we went on the wonder wheel. Uh, it was awesome. And, and, uh, and Matthew decided he really wanted to go to the Coney Island freak show, you know? And this is when it was on the boardwalk, like in the mid 90s. And before you get into, before you got into the Coney Island freak show, there was the Coney Island Freak Museum, right? So we paid our admission and we walk in and like a shot, he's off through the crowd. And I, I remember just sort of wading through the sea of people, you know, past the like pickled chupacabras and the mermaid paws and all that stuff. And I finally see Matthew standing in front of this wall uh, filled with photographs, uh, just his jaw open and above the wall and these big, this big party store banner that read the wall of genital oddities. <laughs> and, uh, and I just stood next to him and like every little photograph was like this little like window into this other dimension where like men had penises that branch off like bulbs of ginger, you know? And, uh, and, and there's like Kalahari bush pussies with like uh, 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 weird labial piercings and like uh, penises covered with so many venereal warts, they look like the sandworms of Dune, you know? And, and, and I'm like, I'm standing there just staring at this wall with him and then like for like a good minute and then I feel like the, like the eye of Sauron on me, you know? Like I knew like hundreds of miles away my mom was so suddenly aware that her 10-year-old baby was like standing in front of this wall of deformed, you know, wieners and twats. And, and, I, and I, I grab him by the hand and I, and I start pulling him away and he goes fucking nuclear. He, he just started having this tantrum and I was like, I was like, oh man, uh, you know, I'm trying to calm him down and he's just, he's so upset with me because at that moment I wasn't being his buddy, you know, I wasn't being his buddy like I'd always been as a kid. I was trying to parent him and it really bothered him, you know? And um, after he calmed down a bit, we went into the, uh, the actual freak show, and we're watching the, you know, sword swallowers and the, and the contortionists and, and whatnot, and, and he's sort of sulking. And, and, uh, and it took me a bit to realize that I think it's because, you know, I left him alone. I went to college, you know, and uh, I grew up, and he was now the only little kid in the family, you know, and it had to be a pretty lonely place. So, uh, after the show was over, the ringleader guy comes out and says, all right, you know, uh, before the next show starts, uh, if anybody would like for an extra $4, we have a room in the back. <laughs> something special in it. And, uh, and, he, he, and he made a big point of saying, anybody under the age of 18 must be accompanied by an adult. So I was like, okay, you know, I can win Matthew back here. So I was like, you want to go, little buddy? And he's like, yeah. So, so we bounded down the bleachers, and we followed the, the crowd down this hallway. And I'm like, the whole time, and you know, I paid the guy the $4. And the whole time, I'm thinking, like, what's going to be in this room? You know, is it going to be like some deformed elephant man that they're like, you know, chained to a wall that they're like 
throwing dead squirrels at for him to eviscerate her. Or like, uh, you know, some like purple-assed baboon creature gonna launch at us from the shadows, you know, or, or something. But uh, like the whole crowd of us, uh, uh, parents and, and mostly teenagers, um, uh, we're, we entered this small room and I mean, it was tiny. And uh, we were really sort of packed in there and there's nothing in this room except for this TV mounted in the corner uh, like a, you know, like one of those hospital TVs. And, and we're all sort of being packed in. And Matthew and I are, are in the middle of this crowd and we're just sardined in there. And the door shuts behind us and the lights go out. And, and I'm like, oh my God, what's gonna happen? <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you know, uh, somebody hits play on a VCR or something like that and the, the screen crackles for a second. And then it's just, boom, the world's angriest vagina on screen, and, and, and all of a sudden it hits me what we're about to be shown. It's a birthing video from the 1970s. And, and I'm like, and every, I can tell every parent's eyes are on me all of a sudden. Matthew is the youngest kid by a good six or seven years. You know what I mean? And I'm like, oh shit, where do I go? You know, like we can't get out of here. I mean, Matthew's like, face is like mashed up against this like Long Island gorilla shoulder, you know, and, 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 uh, and, and there's nowhere to go. And then all of a sudden on screen, like, blood starts pouring out of his vagina and like ooze and like this head starts crowding out of it and like it's like it's blowing a bubble with ears you know and, and I don't know I'm sitting there going oh shit no 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 and 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 then like the, this doctor's hand reaches into the frame and starts pulling this baby out and it's just manages to get out and just followed by this tide of like afterbirth and this gross umbilical cord and then and then like the whole thing is over and I'm standing there going Holy shit, I am the worst, worst babysitter in the world. There's no way this kid should have seen this. And, and I could feel all these parents like with their accusing eyes on me, you know, and their, their, their judgmental eyes on me. And, and then all of a sudden, I hear this little voice next to me coming from Matthew. And he yells, Show it in reverse! <laughs> the crowd starts going, show it in reverse, show it in reverse, show it in reverse. And Matthew's clapping and yelling, show it in reverse. And he's looking up at me and he's, he's just smiling from ear to ear. And he like, he's just looking at me with this real like look of accomplishment, you know? Like, I did this, you know? And he had the whole room, show it in reverse. And sure enough, the, the guy in the back of the room hits the rewind button and this vagina on screen starts slurping up this baby in the afterbirth like the world's most hideous plate of pasta. And then this doctor's hands just sort of shove the baby like back in and, and all the blood just sort of scoops back in there and everybody starts cheering and clapping and 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 and, and they're all patting Matthew on the on the back and uh and I've never been prouder of another human being than I was of him at that moment. And, uh, and you know, man, like, I wasn't the best big brother. You know, I, I might have scarred the kid a little psychologically. I might, have, I might have given him some negative encouragement. But, you know, from where I was standing, the kid turned out all right. Thank you.
wraps up the Risk episodes recorded in the year 2011, folks. This is The Rifles behind me right now with a song called Coming Home. And finally, for some reason or other, I feel compelled to say that, folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Prior to this time, I had worked as a nurse's aide. I was working an overnight shift, and during my rounds, I walked in on a man who was about 300 pounds. He was nude. He was rolled over on his side with his ass facing the door. And I remember just thinking for a moment, something's not right with this picture. And then I realized, oh, there's a wire coat hanger protruding from his ass. He had been using the coat hanger to sexually stimulate himself and then fell asleep immediately after. (laughs) He looked for all the world like a TV on his side, but a very satisfied television.